Welcome to the Gottesdienst crowd, where we foster confessional integrity, liturgical preservation, and preaching that doesn't stink. We believe that the historic liturgy of the divine service is more than mere cobwebs of antiquity, but it is a true treasure of the church to be dusted off and brought down from her attic to be enjoyed. So let's get dusting. Welcome back to the Godestine's Crowd. This is Jason Broughton. Today we have with us a special guest, uh, one of my, I guess, kind of classmates from the seminary, um, but definitely a compatriot in arms at Redeemer uh, while I was at seminary, the Reverend Dr. James Lee. He is the Associate Professor of Theology at Concordia University, Chicago, also the Chair of Department. Uh, Welcome to the Godestine's Crowd, James. Thank you, Jason. It's a pleasure to be here. So you guys are hosting a conference in June, June 2nd, Friday, June 2nd, a one-day conference on confessionalism seminar, that is the role of confessional documents. Uh, It's focusing really on the 19th century, it seems like. And the 19th century, particularly Christianity, but I think even a lot of other religions as well, saw a revival in both confessional documents and writings, as well as liturgical writings and polemics. You know, the Oxford movement comes to mind, Abraham Kuyper, Mm -hmm. all the Lutherans uh, in Germany and Europe, uh, a number of the Reformed. I mean, I think Kierkegaard's part of this. And what was going on? Describe what was happening in that time period that you saw such kind of a burgeoning or a a swelling of these kinds of discussions and writings uh, within Christianity in general, and then perhaps in Lutheranism in particular? At the end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century, we see that there is just this flowering, or some would say a springtime of Christianity. And from what we can tell, this begins in some way to be a re- this starts off as a reaction against a really rigid, dry, moralizing enlightenment mm. that had really done a toll on Christianity, taken a toll, I should say, on Christianity. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking primarily here of Europe. And there was, this is the same period that you also then have different philosophical movements we can think of uh, the idealism specifically German idealism but then you also have romanticism both kind of as a quasi-scientific quasi-philosophical quasi-literary movement and all these things are reactions against the enlightenment and there's a desire to return to something more fulfilling more robust, something that connects the person beyond just the confines of their mind and pure reason. Mm-hmm. And within Christianity in these and these Christian circles, Roman Catholics reformed Lutherans. There is just, a, again, to repeat myself, this flowering of Christianity and a rediscovery for many of, of the scriptures and the beauty of the scriptures and the, the life-giving aspects of the scriptures. And for other people, or not for others, at the same time, I should say, there's also this experiential quality that characterizes Reformed Roman Catholic and Lutherans, mm-hmm. and that Christianity isn't just doctrinal, nor is it this moralizing, rationalistic endeavor, Mm -hmm. but it was something that the individual experienced, specifically uh, one's own recognition of sin and then this experience of grace. And particularly within a German context, you see early 19th century, this was quite, and I use this word in a non-technical sense, ecumenical. And what I mean by ecumenical is there's kind of this working together of Lutheran, Reformed, and even some ways Roman Catholic, where there is just a almost this second naivete, a rediscovery of Christianity. But eventually within 10, 15, 20, 30 years, the, this rediscovery starts to occur alongside of 
confessional lines. And you have Lutherans who were growing out of this awakening, turning from the scriptures to the confessions and returning to the confessions and really rediscovering them anew and seeing them as a kind of text that they had not experienced before. So, so what I hear you saying is that this was somewhat of a reaction to kind of a dead dogmatism, um, a purely uh, rationalistic exercise to a, a, a living and practiced faith that, um, that included dogma, but was not just formulaic. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's a, a very fair assessment and statement of this. There's also political aspects that are going on, particularly after the defeat of Napoleon and this uh, kind of burgeoning German spirit that's <laughs> transpired, that's developing throughout Germany and this desire to uh, be anti-French. This, this plays a part in this kind of, for lack of a better word, conservative political movement that is transpiring. But I think it's important to note the political aspects of this. But for our purposes, it's not that essential to, to focus on. Mm -hmm. So was part of this kind of rationalizing tendency uh, also to, uh, was there a sense in which the that biblical science tried to boil down Christianity into just certain beliefs to make us all united instead of focusing on uh, perhaps the distinctives within each, I guess, denomination, if you could call it that. They probably didn't call it that then. Um, is that part of it as well, kind of um, reacquainting ourselves with what is distinctive about what it means to be not only Christian and not generally religious, but in particular Lutheran or Reformed or things like that. Yeah, I think what we see in the late 18th century are different kind of rationalistic threads that appear. Mm -hmm. One thread is this desire to reform Christianity according to the tenets of reason to make it rational because, and here I'm thinking of people like Lessing and perhaps most famously Kant, they don't necessarily argue that the propositions of faith are untrue, but they can't be demonstrated. They're, they, they are based upon either revelation or they're based upon historical facts, and those things are contingent, and they aren't congruent with reason. So the attempt to refashion Christianity to make it rational, but it's interesting, you, made a, you, you stated something that at least we see with Kant, and I think we see with Lessing, and other reformed-minded rationalists in this kind of thread, the desire to have a unified Christianity, or even to use the language of Kant, a unified religion mm -hmm. that then moves people beyond the historic distinct positions of their various confessions. Mm -hmm. And again, looming in the background for these people was the Thirty Years' War and the devastation that the Thirty Years' War brought. But also, you, you brought up another interesting point there are also rationalists who were quite biblically oriented and wanted to elevate the scriptures over and above everything else. And really, as you said, in kind of this uh, biblical science or biblical vision shaft. And here we have the emergence of uh, critical biblical scholarship mm -hmm. and that this was the true uh, real edifice of what Christianity is, and that the scriptures are to be elevated above everything else. And some would say almost to the exclusion of everything else, or making these other things simply hallmarks rather than uh, marks of a confessional or a Christian identity. Mm -hmm. So it was, um, 
I mean, I wouldn't have a problem with saying elevating the scriptures above other things. What was that distinctive then in how they viewed the elevation of the scriptures versus, say, how we Lutherans would say that it is the norming norm? It is the thing that norms all other things. What is that? What is the distinction between the way the rationalists viewed it and, say, um, the early Lutherans, uh, Luther and you know his compatriots, and then we ourselves today? These kind of scientific, if we can call them that, rationalists, these biblical scientific rationalists, see within the scripture not necessarily the revealed word of God, but an almost infinite sea of scholarship or source for scholarship. Gotcha. That the Bible is to be examined and studied, and it is the place for from which uh, scientific theologians can propose new truths, for lack of a better word, new hypotheses, new theories. So the scripture scripture is elevated against the confessions because the scripture is is open to countless possibilities mm. uh, from their perspective, possibilities of scientific research, right? Using various historical methodologies, archaeology, using languages and comparing the scriptures with other scriptures and comparing the or comparing the scriptures with other texts, com- doing intertextual studies. This is the age where this is developing. So you know, when we read it and we see them talking about the scripture, we can say, oh, this sounds great. And they will often use polemics to say, well, we elevate the scripture over and against uh, doctrine, over against doctrinal tradition, or even over against the the confessional documents. But this, we have to be careful. They mean here the scripture as a document of that that will allow them unbridled scientific discovery. Okay. So was it was it then the 19th century confessionalism reaction to that uh, how did they posit that? Did they did they say we agree that the scriptures are primary but you have made you, you have taken away all of uh, for lack of a better word revelatory power, the the mysticism, so to speak, that's not the right word, but the mystery. Uh, and you have taken that all away just to, to make it something that is not something that actually has any authority over you, but you have authority over it. You, you said a key word that I want to underscore, and that is revelation and revelatory. At the end of the 18th century into the 19th century, we have this debate between the rationalists and the supernaturalists. And at the heart of this debate was the revelatory character of scripture. Now, what's fascinating is many people who were what we would consider the rationalists still use the word revelation. Mm -hmm. They just redefined it. We see that anywhere from from people to Kant to Schleiermacher. None of no almost no one is willing to jettison the word revelation. Now we can say that's because they know what will happen, perhaps from state censure, if they do, so they redefine uh, revelation. So what we have in the awakening, these awakening movements, and then eventually the confessional awakening and their confessional revival, at its at the heart is a recovery of a biblical, robust understanding of revelation that is not restricted to human reason and human rationality. Now, obviously, there are going to be people who continue this rationalistic um, train of thought that continue into the 19th century, right? It's not Mm -hmm. as if the revival and the confessional awakening is the end of that kind of position. Mm -hmm. But for these Lutherans, Reformed Roman Catholics, and then when you get into the Lutheran revival, the recovery of revelation and that in the scripture, there is a personal and communal speaking from God to the individual that then requires 
maybe requires the wrong word, but then brings about this experience, uh, mm. the experience of one's dread over sin, and then the experience of grace, conversion, etc. Okay. So why have a conference on this? I mean, it's 100 years old um, or more. Is there something that's going on even in our day that you see we as pastors or as folks in the pews can benefit from learning what they have to teach? So I'll kind of be maybe a little long-winded in answering uh, this question. That's all right. We love that. On the one hand, yeah. On the one hand, it's kind of uh, self-serving. Uh, my, Jacob Corzine and I both research 19th century and 19th century confessional revival, confessional renewal, whatever kind of term we want to use. These terms are uh, kind of synonymous, and we both find this area of scholarship to be not just interesting, but heartening for us as Lutheran theologians, as Lutheran pastors. And I think like a number of us, we were introduced to the confessional revival at seminary. And also knowing that our own history of the Missouri Synod comes out of this confessional renewal that is transpiring across Germany. So there's a desire to to return to this, to recover it, to study it afresh, partly because we think we don't really know it. And that includes, you know, uh, myself as well. I've studied aspects of it, but there's so much that we've yet to really dive into. And for those of us in our midst who don't read German, it becomes even harder to enter into a study of this period, of these figures, of these texts, so one of the things we wanted to do was in in creating this seminar was to bring some to find a there's a number of topics we could have had right we could have done ecclesiology we could have done the liturgy we could have done sacraments we could have done political thought mm. a, a number of different things but this is the confessional revival and it just seemed obvious well why not try to gain a better understanding, at least from a few respective theologians, of what they meant by the confessions. Well, we know what you we know what the texts they mean, but how are they utilizing the confessions? What are the arguments they were making about the confessions? Clearly these were contested points that they were making. Mm -hmm. And for us, I think we take the confessions, I don't want to say we take them for granted, but we assume them. And we assume that these are authoritative texts, partly because we have grown up within a confessional Lutheran church, at least from its history. Mm -hmm. And I would say within the last, what do we want to say, 20, 30, 40 years, there's been a uh, intentional refocusing on the confessions that we see going on at seminaries, at some of the Concordias, at some of the publications that are coming out of Missouri Synod, either officially or uh, in uh, publications like Godestines, for example. Mm -hmm. And that the role of the confessions, the, the importance of confessions, the centrality of the confessions are taken for, are, are assumed. But how did this happen? How did we get here? So this is one of the questions we want to uh, probe a little bit in this conference. Mm -hmm. So if so if if rationalism was what uh, brought about the demise, if you could say that, of confessionalism within Christianity in general uh, before the 19th century's revival of it, what are the threats to it today that are kind of swirling about in? philosophy, psychology, all these sorts of things. Huh. I hadn't really thought of that, especially the way you went with uh, psychology and these other things. Perhaps there is a similar threat that we see in the 19th century, but is in its own American way something we have to confront here. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, to, to be very generic, it's this American individualism mm -hmm. that we have inherited that shapes all of us, and even those of us who find it problematic and reject it, I think we have to be honest and say 
we have we swim in these waters. It's a part of our, for lack of a better word, worldview, mm-hmm. and it's the air we, we have breathe. To, exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly, right? Uh, fish don't know they're wet, and we perhaps we know we're wet, but we're still in the we're still in that water, mm-hmm. and this desire for that I think people are going to have a similar problem t- with the confessions that they might have in the 19th century, but recognizing differences. Who is a church? Who is a congregation? Who is an institution to, I'm bringing up some language from the 19th century, burden my conscience by making me uh, hold to these documents, Mm -hmm. hold to these texts, that this is an imposition, a foreign imposition from a historical text from you know many centuries ago so i think that is going to be problem potentially problematic mm-hmm. but perhaps the other problem that we could face is or we are facing is just a mere lip service to the confessions that oh yeah yeah we know the confessions we've studied them we took a class on them at seminary mm-hmm. whatever and we're done and we have we don't reject them we don't dismiss them at least not explicitly but we just don't engage them we don't study them we don't see them as an actual confession that we have to make and a part of the ongoing study of scripture and confession of doctrine that we make now that mm-hmm. each of us have to make now right as we say in our ordination vows that we that we make these our own Mm-hmm. So there's been a lot of talk, um, or I guess in the past, uh, I think particularly three years since 2020, but I think even before then, I mean, Aaron Wren has talked about, you know, being in the negative world as opposed to the positive world. That is where Christianity is no longer seen as a positive good. Um, and now it's actually seen as a negative for any sphere of life whether you're a doctor, lawyer, or politician, or whatever. Um, in what sense does, does then confessionalism, uh, holding to a particular statement of belief, take the back seat because we now see that, for, or, or we feel the threat of Christianity surviving within our homeland by social pressures from the outside, that our instinct will be to minimize those things in order to make just kind of a general Christian confession. Does that make sense? No, that makes perfect sense. And, you know, there's going all the way back to, uh, you know, uh, when he was just uh, Joseph Ratzinger Mm -hmm. uh, kind of prophesying. I I don't mean that technically, but I believe in the late 60s, early 70s of a smaller Christian church uh, yeah, we've seen this, and even even someone like you know Rod Dreher talking about in this post-Christian age, mm-hmm. uh, the, we're going to have these uh, decreasing denominations in terms of size, mm-hmm. and those who are truly pious and faithful will have to see similarities across the confessional divide. And I think there is some truth to that, right? Mm-hmm. And that's we are able to see with a pious, faithful Roman Catholic and a pious, faithful, reformed Christian that there are great similarities that exist between their respective confessions and our respective confessions. But hopefully, I don't think these things are mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. If we're living in this post-Christian age where Christianity is viewed in a negative light, those of us who who remain faithful and desire to be a part of the church. I think for many people, they're not going to see that identification as negative, but actually might see it as positive. And in the midst of a society that is rudderless and that is at least theoretically saying you could believe whatever you want to believe, even though there is definitely a kind of a monolithic worldview that is shaping people's imaginations and their hearts and their desires, that the people who reject that want to believe something that has 
gravitas that is serious that mm-hmm. isn't uh mushy now obviously there's going to be mushy christians uh to be sure that still remain faithful so i think for those of us who remain and want to remain and we see this as our identity i don't see necessarily a confessional identity being problematic and that we can actually perhaps better approach our again faithful Roman Catholic neighbor or faithful Reform neighbor. Um, and I don't want to pretend like we're all just going to get along and uh, <laughs> a- ignore differences. Mm-hmm. But we, in some ways, I'm sh- you, you, know, you and I know this, in some ways it's easy for, we have more camaraderie in a certain sense with a pious Roman Catholic than we do with certain people within the Missouri Senate. And because they take their faith, I, I don't want to say they take it so seriously, like those that we disagree with in our confession don't take their faith seriously. They do. But to take the their respective confessions, to take the received traditions, to take mm-hmm. these things that have been handed down to us, and then we cherish them and honor them and value them. Mm-hmm. We see that camaraderie. We see there's something there that we are so we're close on, even though there's great confessional divide, right? Yeah. Uh, even though the anathemas of Trent still stand. Right. Yeah. Well, you can uh, you can see this just in in families, I think. You know, I can have a whole lot of respect for a man who who really loves his 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 fathers, those who have passed things down to him. Um fathers of the flesh, I mean. Uh, you know, the things that he learned from his grandparents or great grandparents or the things he's received from his dad or grandpa. Um, even though I might not agree, um, you know, with that particular way of looking at things, I can, I can respect a man who respects and honors his forebears. And I think that plays absolutely as well within Christianity that I can respect someone who respects those who have gone before him and handed these things down and not just simply jettisoned them. Yeah, absolutely. And that we, there's a, again, to kind of use Luther's language right there, or to, to flip it, there's a similar spirit there. And yeah. we, we can recognize that even though differences abound. Yeah. And so does that relate then to this, uh, one of the threats that you mentioned, the, the rampant like rugged individualism of Americans to cast off um, what has gone before us. Are those things related? Perhaps, right? And I think, again, I I don't think we, in some way we're postmodern, obviously, mm-hmm. but in another way, modernity has stayed with us and this romantic ideal of the individual, right? Mm-hmm. Who has to create himself, discover himself, make himself. And part of the way you do that is by casting off that which has gone before you. Yeah. Ironically, that also had a point of connection with the enlightenment, right? Uh, yeah. Kant talks about the enlightenment. The one who the enlightened person is the one who thinks for himself, who casts, who dares to cast off these uh, traditions in order to think for himself. So this this has been with us, and it's. I don't know how we move beyond it, and in some way, on a large cultural level, I wonder if we ever can. But at least on smaller levels, right? And mm-hmm. the rediscovery of tradition, the rediscovery of institutions, right? And the recognition that institutions aren't necessarily um, uh, just the man or institutions aren't Mm -hmm. simply just a accumulation of error, but have a transformative shaping role to play in our lives rather than institutions being the platform for me to express my individualism and to make an institution kowtow to me and actually then uh, sh- then uh, parody my individualism. So l- let's kind of look at what you have planned for this conference. Uh, it looks like you have two major 19th century theologians, Andreas Rudelbach and Theodosius Harnack, what do these two gentlemen uh, bring to the table for us, and what could participants or 
those who attend expect to hear? I can start a little, let me start with Harnack, because Harnack is the theologian of the two that I'm more familiar with. I'll be very honest. I knew nothing of Rudelbach before uh, working with uh, my colleague, Jacob Corzine, about creating this conference. And he was the one who came up with a Rudelbach, and I still know very little about him. But mm-hmm. Harnack, Harnack was a very formative thinker within this 19th century confessional revival. He taught at uh, Dorpat, he taught at Erlangen, and then he went back to Dorpat. Harnack, his, his interest, I think in many ways aligned with some of our own interests today. He was part of this liturgical recovery and renewal mm-hmm. and wrote pretty extensively on on liturgy and liturgical recovery. And he's not the only one in this 19th century who does that. Obviously, there's individuals like Lea, Clifford, and others. But Harnack also then returned to Luther. And while Luther had clearly not been forgotten, one of the things that Harnack did was recover Luther, not simply as a symbol of German identity or a symbol of enlightenment freedom, these things. And these were kind of ways that Luther had been uh, parodied uh, at this point. But he recovered Luther as a theologian, and he returned to Luther as a theologian, and he placed Luther in conversation, in perhaps actually debate, with various theological errors of his own day, namely errors that were attending to the doctrine of justification and the atonement. Harnack turned to the confessions, uh, the text that we're going to consider for this conference, in light of a controversy wherein one of his colleagues had rejected the Lutheran doctrine of the atonement. Mm-hmm. And this turned into a massive controversy throughout these confessional Lutheran circles of 19th century Germany. And Harnack and his colleague Tomasius, who were both colleagues of Johannes von Hoffmann, who was the, the instigator of this controversy, they both turned to write against their colleague, and they turned to the confessions to show von Hoffmann that the confessions actually speak to this text, to this, excuse me, doctrinal loci, Mm -hmm. and they do so authoritatively. And in their conversation, particularly again with Harnack, Harnack enters into this discussion about what the confessions are, what kind of weight they had. And Hoffman wasn't, what, what, why I think this text is going to be helpful. Hoffman wasn't Schleiermacher. Hoffman wasn't a, uh, at least he did not see himself as a mediating theologian, right? He could have mm-hmm. been. He could have identified himself in this way. But Hoffman, at least from his perspective, saw himself as a faithful confessional Lutheran. He was part of these confessional circles. He was writing for a very well-respected confessional journal, and the faculty of Erlangen was hailed as one of the centers, if I should restate that, as the center of kind of academic Lutheran confessional thought within the 1850s. Okay. And so it's not a conversation between a confessionalist and a liberal. It's a confession, it's a debate between two men who see themselves as authentically Lutheran, a Lutheranism that seeks to identify itself very closely with the confessions. And so they enter into discussion over, well, then what are the confessions? What role do they have in uh, doctrinal doctrinal assertions, or I should say doctrinal articulations later on? And then the freedom of a theologian in in his work as a theologian. So is there any import to learn how uh, these two theologians interacted and discussed these things for us to learn on how to interact and discuss these things with one another? Is it so not just what they said, but how did they go about it? Is there something for us to glean from them in that regard? 
perhaps let me think about that. Um, they see the confessions, and this was something that I, I don't want to say was limited to the 19th century, but that the confessions were not simply some kind of obligatory censor that mm-hmm. you had to get past, that you had to mark, mm-hmm. but they were they were they were living and i don't want to say living such as like a living understanding of the constitution although right. some probably had a similar experience like that but i think back to harnack's colleague uh tomasius godfrey tomasius and tomasius speaks about his discovery of the confessions in a similar way almost as he does to the scriptures that the confessions spoke that they spoke to an experience of of sin and the grace of Christ that he had and this so therefore the confessions were not just simply historical markers and i don't think we think that in our day mm-hmm. but i would i would not be surprised if there are those in our midst who do think that mm-hmm. and that as long as we don't explicitly reject the confessions we're okay yeah and I think these gentlemen enter into a discussion that really get at aspects of the confessions that I don't think we have really prosecuted mm-hmm. at all, and that perhaps are needed if hopefully not just simply for to again give us more historical uh data and yeah. uh factoids, but yeah. that it helps us better appreciate, better articulate, and ultimately better confess what the confessions are. Yeah. So it wasn't as though, and this is going to be a caricature, it wasn't as though they were using the scriptures or even the confessions as kind of a bludgeon to show how someone else was wrong. I mean, they would they would try to point out error, but it wasn't just a club to beat somebody up with. Correct, uh, especially for these individuals around Erlangen. I, I use this word lightly because it's so misused and it becomes uh, either a badge of uh, pride or a, 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 a bludgeon. They didn't see themselves as repredestinationists. And what I mean by that is they didn't see the role of a theologian as simply re simply restating what had previously been stated but that there's the theologian has to be able to confess articulate and i think these individuals would would say attend to theological matters that perhaps had not received enough adequate sufficient attention in the past and so the confessions weren't you're right just a bludgeon but nor they saw the confessions as being central to the role of the theologian in his effort to speak to the theological needs of the day mm-hmm. not simply saying well these are the needs and this is what small called says or this is what ac7 says not that they wouldn't look there but that perhaps certain issues needed to uh any way i want to say this is going to make me sound or is going to put a bad uh framing on sure. some of these individuals and some of them probably deserve it some of them felt that the the confessions were not wrong but they were inadequate yeah uh right someone like Wilhelm Lea thought that who Lea again uh maintained a queer subscription to the confessions, but he believed that in certain doctrinal loci, the confessions were not sufficient. It's not that they erred, but that they were not, they they did not provide a sufficient confession of the doctrine. Mm-hmm. So, so one, he, sorry. Yeah. So he, view, so Leia viewed them then as they address things tangentially in some ways that could help us at least categorize or give us a manner of thought about these things, but they're never, the conventions are never meant to be 
simply kind of static things that you study to try to put in place now only to put those things in place, but uh, but to be formed by them so that you can confess in the same manner as those who wrote these confessions confessed then. Uh, yes, I think that's a, a very a fine uh, way of saying it. So, you know, with Leah, we think of the two issues where he was criticized uh, for moving beyond the confessions, and we could just focus on one, his kiliasm. <laughs> Leah argued that his eschatology was not in out of line with the confessions. He argued that the confessions had a uh, unsufficiently articulated doctrine of the last things, mm -hmm. but his own articulation of it, he saw was in continuity with it. So to extrapolate from that, I believe Leo would think that further doctrinal articulation needs to be in conformity with the confessions, but where the confessions have not articulated in a thorough enough manner a doctrine regarding specific theological loci, theologians need to study specifically the scriptures and further articulate doctrine mm -hmm. in conformity to scripture and the confessions. Mm -hmm. So part and parcel, I think of, when I think of 19th century confessional revival, you know, I also think of guys like John Henry Newman and kind of this push for development of doctrine. Is that, mm -hmm. is that, is that uh, kind of thinking alive and well in these 19th century theologians? And is it of the same kind of development of doctrine that you saw in John Henry Newman? Or is that beyond? That is a great question. <laughs> development of doctrine was, that was in the air that they were breathing. Yeah. And one can argue development of doctrine, well, you see it from a, let's use the word theologically liberal perspective, from individuals like F.C. Bauer, D.F. Strauss, mm -hmm. and others like them, who articulated a very robust development, uh, robust development theory of doctrine development, wherein they saw an ongoing growth and development of doctrine, and that for them, and was particularly weaponized by someone like Strauss, who then said, this means that no doctrine is stable. No doctrine can be utilized as an actual uh, real confession of the church. Doctrine, Bauer said, right? When you look at doctrine, it's always reflective of a snapshot of a particular history of the church. But doctrine continues to develop. And for them, you know, a lot of these individuals were motivated by kind of a, not kind of, a German idealistic understanding. And they saw Christianity as the uh, height of religions that that best corresponded with the reality that they that German idealism saw, but they had to move beyond the specific doctrinal articulation. Uh, right, the problem with doctrine is for them it's rigid and it mm. impedes growth and development. So that is, you know, on the one hand, the very progressive or liberal, we should say, uh, side. Yeah, but then others like you said, Newman, Neander, and these confessionalist, uh, confessional Lutherans of the 19th century all believed in various theories of development. But for them, development didn't mean that which in the past was moved beyond or was overcome or was, uh, was then uh, the, sh the husk that yeah. then was shed but was a part of the theological legacy of the church. But they also recognized that not only is there development, but then there's also um, negative development. There could be problematic growth. And you, they often look at the 
aspects of, well, both within the early Christian church and then the medieval church that illustrates uh, negative growth and how uh, error can seep into the church and then create a lineage or a tradition of erroneous growth. Mm. So for them, the, I think of someone like Tamasias who sees Lutheranism and the Lutheran confessions is really the pinnacle of doctrinal development. And even Lea saw the Lutheran confessions in that way too, as the height of development. But returning to Lea, he saw that there were issues that still required further development. Because mm -hmm. again, thinking of someone like Lea, Lea believed that development is driven by God by the the Trinity's presence within the church. Leia develop for Leia development was particularly Christological and pneumatological, and that there is this ongoing relationship between the Trinity within the church, and that if this is true, aspects of doctrine still needs to be developed, mm -hmm. that they see this kind of happening in segments throughout history, mm. and that now their age still has a few doctrinal loci that are requiring further articulation. Yeah. Okay. So who, who is coming to speak at your conference on June 2nd, and what will they be talking about? Originally, we were going to have two speakers, but we've had to shift to uh, one speaker. Our keynote speaker will be someone that I think uh, is quite familiar to probably the Godestine's audience, and that is uh, Reverend Dr. Roland Ziegler of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne. As many people know, Dr. Ziegler is a man of many talents, so he is going to be speaking about what confessional subscription is, specifically looking at it from a historical perspective. Mm. Then my colleague uh, Jacob Corzine and I are both going to be giving papers uh, Jacob will give a paper on Rudelbach and then uh, set the context for the text that we're going to examine from Rudelbach. I will give a paper on Harnack and setting a context for the paper. And then all of the uh, registrants will receive translations of these texts, not the entire text, but key sections of the text, uh, translations done by Matthew Carver. And after our papers, we will spend time studying the text together. So everyone will need to read them beforehand, but then we will, drawing forth from the text, engage in a conversation of what, how do these individuals understand the confessions? What kind of arguments are they making? And also perhaps what, where would we disagree with them? What, mm. what might be errors? Where could we learn? And then the second half of the conference will be dedicated to uh, papers from the participants in the conference. So we are inviting all registrants to submit an abstract and then key uh, abstracts will be accepted and there will be a time for then participant paper. And we're asking that these abstracts be related to the confessions. They don't necessarily have to be about the confessional revival, but those will probably be privileged, but somehow related to the Lutheran confessions. So where can uh, listeners register for this conference? If they go to, I should have had this up and I apologize. If they Google Concordia University Chicago Confessionalism Seminar, that will take them to our website where they can register for the conference. It's a single day event, as you mentioned, on Friday, June the 2nd, beginning at 8 a.m. with matins and then concluding with vespers and then a uh, kind of gemutlichite type uh event. Okay. I'll uh, find that link and put it in the show notes. Last question. Um, for someone who is just being introduced to 19th century, um, what kind of introductory resources? I remember at seminary, we had to read um, Walter Conzer's Church and Confession. And I think that kind of goes into some of this. Anything else as kind of just a primer on you know, getting the, the 19th century juices flowing? Yeah, unfortunately, the no one has really put out a 
really good work on the 19th century confessional revival, but I do have a few texts that I would recommend. Uh, I would still begin with Concer. Concer does a a nice job of summarizing this movement and putting it into context with uh, other parallel events that are going on. I would begin, I would recommend a text by a scholar by the name of Andrew Close, who wrote a really nice monograph on the awakening movement, the German awakening movement. I can't quite remember if he, if it's called the awakening movement or the German awakening movement, but K-L-O-E-S, and that's readily available. And that will give a really good background to the development of the to what this awakening is, from which then the confessional awakening uh, emerges. Mm-hmm. Then, uh, I don't want to toot my own horn, but I do a nice little summary in uh, a work that was published uh, last year called uh, Confessional Lutheranism and German Theological Wissenschaft that at least brings in uh, a a brief historical perspective to the confessional awakening before looking at a few significant theologians in this period. Fortunately, there's been a handful of primary texts that have been translated. There are a few works from Wilhelm Lea that have been translated, both his uh, three books, and then uh, Dr. John Stevenson has translated uh, both sets of his aphorisms on the pastoral, on the office of the ministry. Mm-hmm. There has been at least one translation of August Filmar uh, out there. And to my knowledge, I don't believe there's been anything translated by Harnack or Tomasius or even uh, Titor Klifold. But I know uh, there's some translating projects in the works. Mm-hmm. So I would encourage to start with Concer and then... Heck, if someone wants to email me, I'll give them a bibliography of primary sources that they could find in English. And if they can work in German, if they can work in German, there's a whole host of stuff that's been out, that's been uh, put out. Okay, good, good. Well, I will in um, include a link to your contact information on Concordia University of Chicago's webpage. Um, thank you for your time, James. Uh, I pray the best blessings on this upcoming conference and and especially thank you for your insight uh, along with your colleague uh, Jacob Corzine over there for putting all this together and bringing to light uh, the things that perhaps we have forgotten. Well Jason thank you for having me and thank you for the conversation this was uh, a real treat. Mm-hmm.